0: So to I- explain who everybody is, well, I guess I could just introduce you and, and run the podcast. Hey, our podcast has listeners and a name now. Oh my! Gosh. That seems like a that
1: seems like a myth.
0: And I I've grown to hate all of you because I <laughs> edited every. <laughs> that's a good that's a good way to start the podcast. I <laughs> I edited every last second out of that first podcast. It's like every word that Glenn and Scott and Dan said, I've heard it like a million times.
2: Oh, I hate that. Yeah.
0: I also cut myself out. Like five minutes of me talking in that podcast, I was just like, shut up. (laughs) Just take myself right out.
2: (laughs) I think every podcast is open. I hate all of you. I
0: hate all of you. And welcome. And welcome. welcome. And And it's the Incomparable Podcast, episode three. Who knew that I hate all of you? Anyway, the secrets are revealed. September 2010 this is the incomparable podcast number three and I hate all of you too we talked comics we've talked books we're gonna talk tv I'm Jason Snell joining me across the table here in San Francisco is Jason Brightman hi Jason hey on the um, the Magics of the Interwebs, we have, uh, making his second appearance on the podcast as well, Dan Morin. You just can't keep me down. That's right. And Glenn Fleischman.
2: Hello. Hello.
0: And we have some new people today. We have John Syracuse. Hey, John. Hello, everybody. And Ren Caldwell. Hi. Serenity Caldwell, <laughs> I should say. Should we call you Serenity Caldwell officially and then refer to you as Ren, or sure. make up a name for you?
3: <laughs> yeah, you can just make up whatever you like.
0: <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sharon. So... <laughs> Uh, our topic today is actually um, strange as it may seem the works and the wit and wisdom of Stephen Moffat and we're all we're going to talk about coupling today no Yay. we're not, we're not uh, talk. we could we, we may talk about coupling but uh, mr. Moffat uh, has had a couple shows on recently that have stirred some interest there's Sherlock which had uh, three episodes in the UK which recently ran and will be re- running shortly in the US as part of a masterpiece series on PBS and yet somehow this group of Americans I have before you seems to have seen all the episodes of Sherlock. Pay no attention to the men behind the curtain. we, We just got an advanced copy. Right. We're from sneaky. Such, a, uh, such is the clout
1: of the incomparable.
0: That's exactly right. They, we dropped that first podcast and they're like, here, watch this. I'm sure that was it. So I want to talk – before we get into Doctor Who, which we saw the first year of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who this year, I thought we would start with Sherlock because – especially because Glenn demanded to be on this podcast because he's – I demand to be on this podcast. He's recently – you know, read all of the Sherlock Holmeses and studied and and I, I don't even know what. He may have found a man named Sherlock Holmes and killed him and drunk his blood, for all I know. <laughs> um, That's the next no, Stephen no, Moffat series.
2: You eat his brain to gain his wisdom. <laughs> Thank don't you. Sure Sorry. You know I, I, I totally oh, screwed that up, Glenn. I've said too much. Yes.
0: So let's start with, let's start with Sherlock. Three episodes. Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat produced this show. Very stylish, I thought. Who would like to take the lead in talking about what they felt about Uh, this rebooted 21st century Sherlock Holmes. Dan Morin. Oh, I'll start. Hey, great. Love me. Uh, Just to make Glenn mad that I didn't pick him. (laughs) Uh, I actually came to this from an interesting
1: perspective, which was that earlier this year, uh, after having seen the big screen adaptation done by Guy Ritchie with Robert Downey Jr. in the Sherlock Holmes Road, uh, I saw... I went back and started rewatching a lot of the classic uh, Granada television series with Jeremy Brett, yes, which I thought was which I, I watched when I was a kid when it was like airing because uh, it aired for several years between like late eighties early nineties before uh, Jeremy Brett passed away, and so I went back and rewatched a whole bunch of them because they're all on Netflix streaming, which is which made it so that I watched like five episodes in a sitting pretty easily and. I think what struck me was how much more I enjoyed that than the, the the recent Guy Ritchie endeavor. As much as I like Robert Downey Jr., and I thought that the you know there's a lot of production values, I, I really enjoyed the older series. So when I came out to the Stephen Moffat series, I was very excited because uh, you know I like his work on Doctor Who and, and coupling, which we're not going to talk about today. Um, unless we do. Unless we do. <laughs> and for, for those who are not familiar with it, you know this is an updating of the Sherlock Holmes story into the modern day. So we have Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson in the 21st century, and we've- You know, all the technological uh, doodads that we've all come to to know and love. And it's very interesting because I think they've done a great job of bridging what's totally new and out of character in some ways. And yet still retaining the essential nature of the mysteries and the characters themselves. So... Uh, personally, I mean, I, I think the first thing that, that occurred to me when I watched the the pilot episode was, that, hey, this is, you know, kind of like Doctor Who meets Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's not such a bad thing, I guess. I, I thought that they, they did a great job of casting and uh, it really made each of these episodes feel like like an event, especially with the feature length, uh, the 90 minutes. I I was a big fan of it. I really enjoyed the updates, and I think they did a a great job of uh, bringing a fresh take on Sherlock Holmes that wasn't the uh, uh, Guy Ritchie action movie style
0: well, I know that one of the things that Moffat and Gatiss both have said is that they literally wanted to bring Sherlock Holmes out of the fog and that the stories they felt were great and had gotten lost in this stereotype of Victorianism and fog and, you know, deerstalk and Well, and, and, the, and, the, and the, Yeah, the like character
1: that. itself, which all, all of – so many of the things that we take away from Sherlock Holmes or we have in our memory as an iconic Sherlock Holmes – uh, aren't even derived or, from or the Basil original Rathbone. stories. Yeah, Basil, Basil Yeah, basically Basil Rathbone. And that's if, if anybody's gone back and watched those movies, and I watched those like religiously when I was a kid, they're totally different because a lot of them don't, if any of them, don't take place in the Victorian era. I mean, there are ones where he fights Nazis in like World War II. Um, <laughs> wow. And there's like, yeah. Nazis, no, it's to- are
0: they Nazi supermen? Uh, they're
1: not Nazi supermen. They're All just right. nor- normal Nazi. Are but there I mean, Zeppelins? Uh, maybe in Ooh. one of them. I have to look up there's one called like Sherlock Holmes versus the secret weapon or something Um, nice and so I think what's interesting is that the whole you know that character is like so many other franchised characters and that's taken on life of its own James Bond's another really good example of a character who you know at a certain point became kind of a caricature of the original Um, and I think even Doyle felt that during his lifetime which of course is why he tried to you know off them at a certain point
0: (laughs) okay Glenn go ahead
2: all right, well, now we have an hour reserved for me, right, to discuss this? Oh, <laughs> well, no,
0: because Dan uh, just talked for like five minutes. <laughs> wow. No one told me the to stop. Five
2: seconds. Uh, you know, I thought the new series was actually quite good. I liked episodes one and three better than episode two, which I thought yeah. was weaker, as I think many of the folks here agree. Uh, but I thought, they, I thought they captured, you know, when you look at what is the essence of Sherlock Holmes, and I, I actually I went back and read the, the oeuvre because... Uh, Doyle's oeuvre because I wanted to um, after reading some of the uh, Mary Russell books the Laurie King books about Sherlock Holmes and his wife told from the wife's perspective which are also surprisingly good and have a bizarre ring of the authentic to them, I'm like, I have to remember what these stories are actually about. And before I saw the Guy Ritchie version, too, and I went and read them and I thought, you know, Holmes is, he's not a buffoon, but he's a showman. He's, he's always portrayed as this logical, emotionless person. He has plenty of emotions, but he's, uh, he sort of shapes his reaction to the world. He's a perfect actor. He's always in disguise. He's always perpetuating some kind of interaction with someone to get the reaction he wants. And I thought Guy Ritchie, I think the movie was too... I don't know a little too uh, uh, muggy you know Robert Downey jr. it was great but the whole thing was a little too like wink wink but I thought he captured the notion that um, that he's not just a logical detached person but he has the this uh, enormous mind and this enormous facility for acting and uh, a Moffat's version I think also captures it as well is that you know Holmes is eccentric but he knows precisely how eccentric is e- eccentric he is he's calibrated his eccentricity to the degree to which he can be Uh, tolerated within society and get exactly what he wants out of it. I think that's portrayed. The one thing missing, I would say, is the disguises. Holmes is always in disguise. He's always an old woman or a beggar or, you know, five men somehow, you know, in the space of (laughs) ten minutes. Different outfits as he rips coats off. In the the, the Guy Ritchie movie, that's actually, I think, accurate to the books, too. The other thing is, Holmes is a fighter. The authentic Holmes is a fighter. He's uh, invented his own form of martial arts. That's a combination of jujitsu and karate and something else. He's always beaten somebody up. Uh, Watson carries the gun, but Holmes Uses his fists as well. He's not afraid of that, and I think the the uh, Moffat version, uh, you know, plays that down a bit. There's a fair amount of violence in it, but nothing excessive. It's more um, sort of a give and take, you know, the interplay than that. Um, but but I think it was really I think the Moffat series on its own stands as something that's enjoyable and unique with while paying, you know, kind of a, a very close homage to. Uh, to the books, um, you know. One of the jokes, of course, is the Bruce Par- uh, Bruce Partington affair. Is that, I'm getting Bruce the right Parting the, plans. Uh, uh, Bruce Partington plans, which they which they use, I think, in a clever way. They're sort of giving us a callback to you know 1893 wall. <laughs>
1: oh, and they maintain the plot of that story, too, to a certain extent. Like, the murder sort of plot of that is kept intact if updated.
2: <laughs> that was a beautiful tour de force. And, and I never felt, I mean, you know, was, uh, there, there are some elements, like Sherlock Holmes is a fantastic hacker, as well as a scientist. In the books, he's a scientist. The, the crazy violin playing, um, which I thought mimicked uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s version of the movie as well, the sort of nutty plucking at the violin. I, but, I um, enjoy
0: that Watson's uh, writings about Holmes are now a blog
2: as well. Yeah, it's perfect, but I thought even their relationship was perfect, which is that the Watson of the books isn't an idiot. He's just, he can't encompass um, as much evil as there is in the world, and Holmes can. Holmes is perfectly willing to to think of anything, you know, no matter how, uh, what's what's the famous quote is, uh, when you eliminate the impossible, what remains, no matter how improbable is the truth, something like that, right? And and Watson never accepts that. He believes in both the impossible, but also in the goodness of people, and I think a bit of that was preserved through into the series as well.
0: Ren, what about you?
3: I, only I only heard about Sherlock about a week before it premiered on the BBC, where I just heard out of nowhere, I think Neil Gaiman said something about it on Twitter, and I was like, oh, they're making a new version of Sherlock Holmes? How have I not heard about this? Because I'm a huge, huge fan of Sherlock Holmes. And so went out, found it, and I I really love the series. I mean, I, I was skeptical the first five minutes because of, you know... Uh, john watson psychiatrist being like john i really think that blogging would be a great idea <laughs> an outlet for you yeah oh my gosh i i at that i'm like oh god this is this is gonna be terrible what have you done stephen moffat but then like it, it really ramps up from there the humor in the in these i mean only three 90 minute episodes but really we get so much in such a short span of time between watson and holmes and their relationship and you get it within minutes. And it's so fantastic. I love that Holmes is introduced by text message. I was, again, <laughs> things things about technology that I was skeptical about when I initially saw it. And then, as soon as you kind of accept the trope, it actually really works out. Like We get Holmes just text messaging this entire crowd, and then you get him, hey, P.S., you know where to find me. Uh, only text me. <laughs> and I don't know. It's just, it's interesting because you have, you have the Holmes of the early 1900s and you have that world, but it's really interesting in that, you know, Holmes was still, even in that time period, very much an innovator and very much into technology of that time. So it only makes sense that when you transpose it into the modern era, that he still kind of picked up these quirks and still using these sort of things. There's some
0: interesting uh, visual flourishes in this, in this series, and you mentioned the text messages brings it up. One of the things that they decided to do was flash things on the screen as they're happening, essentially sort of <laughs> annotating what the people are reading on their cell phones by bringing Pop up text – that yeah. pop that pop up so you can see what's on the phone without cutting to the phone and having you read it, which I thought was an interesting idea. I'm not sure whether it worked or not, but it was certainly unlike anything I'd really seen in a in a drama before is the most uh, aggressive use of typography since fringe if anybody <laughs> watches Fringe, they just
1: have massive <laughs> the floating giant headlines
4: floating. All right so in sherlock they had they were a little bit nicer, they were two d and they appeared and disappeared, but mm-hmm. it was like really you know typography in your face, you know you couldn't not notice. That this was I,
1: I like that, that I like that a television show is encouraging reading.
3: Yes. That's right. <laughs> That's always important.
2: You must be literate to watch this show. I think it's good to uh, to mention the supporting characters too, um, both the, the actors and the parts is, you know, the, the Holmes books are full of uh, the oil books are full of a thousand supporting characters in the Baker Street irregulars. And, um, you know, Mrs. Hudson and uh, all the various inspectors he deals with and constables and so forth. <clears throat> and even in the limited period of the first three shows, we got introduced to a bit of that world and um, Holmes relationship it, uh, in it. I thought Mycroft I mean, I like Mark Gaddis quite a bit. I think he's hilarious. And I thought he was What a great pitch red herring perfect. that was, by the way. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. Fantastic but
0: He he's evil. He must be Moriarty. No, it's his brother.
2: But, you know, that's the thing, is Mycroft is... He's not an evil man, but Mycroft, in the books and in all of the subsequent works that have been created from them, Mycroft is the spider at the center of the web that's pulling the threads of the Empire. He, in, you know, in the 19th century, early 20th century, he's the British Empire personified more than the king, really, in the books. I mean, that's sort of the, the conceit there, that the king... You know, the government asks for something, and Mycroft sends assassins or upsets a government or what have you, and now he's... Deeply involved in sort of the same way at MI. What did they say in the? Was it like, oh, he's an MI seven? Did they make a joke I don't about know. He's, some nonexistent? You
0: get the sense that he's at the center of Homeland Security for the British government,
2: right? And yes, and so so he is sort of you know at some level he is an evil mastermind. You can't be in that. He's job just not the it. one you
0: were thinking of.
2: <laughs> so This is not the mastermind what, you're
0: thinking. What of. does everybody think of the casting of of uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch? I love saying that name, Benedict mm. Cumberbatch. He has a and name as weird
3: as Sherlock Holmes.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, mm-hmm. and. Mar- and Martin Freeman, uh, uh, Tim from the UK office, and uh, and Arthur Dent as well uh, uh, as uh, Watson.
1: I think they give Martin Freeman a great chance to sort of stretch and and become. He's very much Holmes's conscience in this show, right? He's sort of his his personal uh, interaction with the world around him. When when Holmes is very aloof and sort of above everything that's going on, Watson is the one who's dealing with uh, the realities. You know, there's the second episode. There's a part where you know uh, the he offers uh, Holmes agrees. do a job at a bank for an old friend and then when the friend offers to you know give him an advance Holmes sort of scoffs at it and walks off and Watson, you know, the ever, the, the practical ones like, no, I didn't mean that. Let me just take that, that check for you. Um, and He's I think it's
0: surrogate too, really. Right. Well, and I mean, in some ways,
1: as with the original stories, they're, they're almost more Watson stories. I mean, the first episode in general, were, which describes, you know, Watson coming back from the war. And I think that was kind of the thing that that sort of conceit was the, that what got me when I first was reading about the show is having Watson return from Afghanistan, which is in fact, exactly the same thing as the books It's just, it's, a different war, but it's sort of the same war at the same time.
2: Oh, I thought he was an old Indian hand. He's an old Afghan
1: hand. No, it? yeah, he's yeah, he's definitely got oh, fought in Afghanistan. And that's what Gattis uh, and Moffat said. That's what that's what inspired them. Sort of started them talking about it. Was like, hey, you know, he was this veteran coming back from Afghanistan. And wait, wait, we we still have a war going <laughs> in Afghanistan all these years later. And I think you know, having him deal with coming back from a war and dealing with like sort of a post-traumatic stress um, and getting involved with this, I just love his character and I love the way that Mark. Freeman delivers some of his lines you know as he's sort of trying feeling out this Sherlock guy and and trying to decide if he should get involved with him and then there's that one scene where where Holmes comes back in and says you're a doctor in fact you're an army doctor
0: yes
5: any good? very good seen a lot of injuries then violent deaths Mm, yes bit of trouble too I bet of course yes enough for a lifetime far too much I want to see some more oh god
3: yes
1: like the way the, <laughs> just the delivery on that is just spot on and you're my like my favorite That's line the first
3: episode has to be
1: <laughs> yeah well Freeman's great I it, think he's awesome
2: it, this is also the Moffat pattern though Doctor Who Holmes I mean and certainly uh, the Sherlock Holmes books give you this scenario gives you the template for Doctor Who and the companion story right is can I throw
0: Jekyll in there Oh, I haven't just, seen Jekyll. Is that the just same thing? for a little, there... just for a little twist. Well, of course, it's he's got a, a he's, hot and cold thing going on because he's Doctor yeah. Jekyll and Mister Hyde. But it's a similar kind of kind of thing, I think.
2: Yeah, and the doctor has to have his companions who remind him that even though he's all powerful, that he's got to you know that he's their pitiful creatures all around him. And Holmes, the same thing. He's on this exalted plane. He lives in the mind. It's all a game to him. And suddenly it's like this old lady's going to die. You know, there's a bomb on her. She's going to die. Are you remembering that? And then it's, oh, of course I'm remembering that, even though maybe he didn't.
0: It can't be a coincidence that that the two favorite things of Stephen Moffat's childhood were Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes. They do have this (laughs) character at the center and uh, you you can see it. And so it is fascinating to see him launch this revisiting of Sherlock Holmes, this changing of that story. And at the same time, also he He's done this um, rebooting. Well, it's not really a reboot. He's following on a, of somebody else's reboot, but he's got his reimagining of, of the of the Doctor Who series. And with Jack, similarly, he was taking a, a literary character and pulling him into the. The uh, uh, 20th century or 21st century and at the time I thought Jekyll was his application for the Doctor Who job um, and now I'm starting to think it might have also been his application to um, to do Sherlock because I can see the similarities there as well.
2: I'm going to bring in I like to set the pretension meter to 10 for just a moment <laughs> and bring in Jorge Luis Borges, his story Talon Uckbor and Orbius Tertius which is about encyclopedias Well that'll and be actually, the name of this episode Excellent! <laughs> it's a sci-fi There's a sci-fi element creeping in but it's this notion in that story that you can change the world by defining it, and I think both Holmes, as like the smartest person in the world, and the doctor, as you know, he can blow up the universe and bring the universe back. That Moffat certainly has an interest in people who can uh, define reality, who can who can shape it and make it approachable. So the unknowable parts of the world are actually created knowable by these people who have an intellect or ability that you know goes beyond anything that any human could have normal human
4: Doesn't the sameness bother anybody? Or maybe I'm the only one. But like when I started watching Sherlock, I felt like oh, this must have been the runner-up for casting the Doctor. You know what I mean? He might as well be the twelfth Doctor. You could well,
3: take this guy, take this actor,
1: and he drop him into that show. turned down
3: the job. He was he uh, was I, actually I didn't offered know that. the job first, and he turned down the job. Yeah, I,
1: I just read a thing today saying that he he denied that that he was offered that. Really.
3: But.
4: But regardless of whether he was offered, you the could thing
1: see this saying. actor
4: playing that, though, right? And oh, absolutely. You look yeah. at him, and, and, and the way he's written, he's written a lot like the Doctor, too. I mean, the, I'm not a big uh, Sherlock guy from way back, so I don't have like the, the the books and everything in my head, so I'm just taking this as what it is. You know, Sherlock, I know the basic outline. Let's see what they're going to do with it. And you can kind of see, if if you took away the Doctor's magic powers and alienness and made him a detective... Uh, and put him in the modern world, this would be kind of how he acted and how he ended up. And uh, I think it's an interesting look at how smart people are in the modern world versus how smart people were in the Victorian time, you know. He ends up being basically kind of a geek, a little bit socially strange. Uh, but we have words for those social things now, so he's more aware of them because the world is more aware of it. You it know, he's have not just being an alien as an excuse for it. Right. But in the Victorian times, he would be respected. But now we know, like, oh, smart people, oh, Asperger's syndrome, or you know, attention deficit, or you know, high functioning autistic. All these words that are in the common knowledge now, he fits into that mold. Whereas in Victorian times, he would just be an eccentric genius. But now we kind of know exactly what's wrong with him, and so he knows more what's wrong with him. So I thought that was interesting, but he does look a little doctory to me, like the whole time through. You know, I'm like, he's, all got, he's got a scarf and everything. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> he's got a companion who happens to be a guy, but they do all the gay jokes with that, which I loved. I thought that was a great part of the series. The you know, perpetual uh, people mistaking them
2: for a couple. But I don't, I don't disagree with you about the doctor, the doctorness. But I think it's, I think the doctor clearly borrowed. I mean, not the early. Uh, I mean, I never watched the first doctor. The second, I think Pertwee was the first one I really saw it at any length. Was he number? three, right or four? Number three. 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 And uh, and <laughs> we um, all answered that a bit too soon, oh, didn't oh, we? Ah geek chest um but you know, and Tom Baker certainly not either. But when you get as the series progressed you get this pattern of the wise mentor and the sort of um, fallible person who brings humanity and whatever, and it's, it's very much a Holmes pattern, and I think, I have to believe the Doctor Who writers always had, from all the, from many of the series, had an affinity to fewer, so it's not that odd that Holmes portrayed in a reasonably accurate way in the modern time would actually feel very Doctor Whoish. ish
4: yeah, I'm not saying that it's wrong so much, just that, you know, since this is a show just about kind of Moffat-type things, or, you know, if you watch <laughs> a lot of that, you start, like... I don't know. I, I, sometimes I might want to see something different. You're saying, is this all you can do? Can you only do the story of the amazing genius and, and the human who's caught up in his web and how he, you know,
0: gives... you know, it's a coupling. coupling where <laughs> exactly. Jeff Murdoch is obviously the amazing genius at the center <laughs> and, 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 and Patrick and, and, and Steve keep balanced as, as his faithful companions as he heads toward his inevitable confrontation with the Melty Man.
3: It's just so embarrassing. I didn't know what to do. It happens to us all, mate. All of us in our time are visited by the Melty Man. Don't say his name, Patrick. Don't even think his name, or he will rise from the shadow dimensions to do his evil work inside your terrified pants. <laughs> <laughs>
2: terrified pants? There's nothing funny about the Melty Man, Patrick. You know about the Melty Man, too? We all know the Melty Man.
3: Who is he? The archenemy of trouser confidence. Professor Moriarty in groin form. Darth Vader without the helmet.
0: So Moriarty appears at the end of the third episode finally of Sherlock. What what do you what do you think? I know it was controversial. He's a little over the top.
1: Yeah, I like that though, because as a foil to our to our Sherlock, who is so clearly, you know, a social midfit. I you know, I have to admit, I watched it the first time and I had a I had a hard time with the guy because I was trying to pin down his accent, which seemed to keep switching.
3: But I think that's the um, point.
1: I think no, I agree, I agree. I when I watched it again. Um I thought there's there's a deliberateness to this that I really enjoy with him. He kind of goes back and forth between I, I think the actor is himself is Irish. And I think he goes back and forth the you know, Irish British sort of a pompous British accent and then uh, even American at a couple points. Mm-hmm. Um and I just but I really enjoyed his delivery. There's something about how relaxed he is, how leisurely in a way that, you know, Sherlock is not. Sherlock who always seems to be running, you know, running around or a little bit high strung. This guy is very calm, very collected. And I love that he, you know, at least, you know, with that sort of twist at the end with him, um, you think he's going to kind of go, oh, I'm going to let you go to live another day. And then he sort of comes back, you know, to to not pull that that typical villain trope of I'm going to explain my plans and now you're going to defeat me. So, you know, we, we don't exactly know how this how this ends up and we will see going into the next series, presumably. But I thought he was great. I enjoyed him a lot.
2: Yeah, we didn't need just another you know, every Holmes is always <clears throat> a white haired man hobbled with a cane, a spider at the center of the web as usual, it's always a spider at the center of the web, isn't it? Who can, pulls all the strings that control all the crime in London and beyond. And instead, it was this fresh take, surprising. I was completely I was like flabbergasted. I'm like, Oh, this is make, it's the most unlikely person, but he matches Holmes's skill and
1: As a consultant it. criminal, like what a great flip oh. from from, you know, Holmes' consulting detective.
2: Yes
3: consultant criminal, oh, it's fantastic, and his movement i I could not oh, get yeah. enough of his movement where it's as you said dan it's very it's very loose, but at the same time he has. This wonderful control over everything where he just kind of flips out and it almost it calls to mind, you know, Charlie Chaplin to a certain extent. Just he has such fantastic timing and you just have no idea what he's going to do. And I appreciate that he has like this legion of snipers that are everywhere.
0: The legion of snipers.
3: Yes, I
4: loved his introduction, too, when he was uh, in the lab, you know, uh, with the passing the, the telephone number, because that was that was a payoff on a running gag of the poor assistant not being able to, uh, you know, get a date with Sherlock or whatever. And he was brought in and Sherlock, you know, notes that he's gay and crushes her once more that was the perfect cover for hiding and to totally inside. fails
1: and, too right like he totally misses that this guy is the guy he's right, been right. looking but, for but that was
4: the perfect cover for the viewer because the viewer did not say oh that's that, i bet that's moriarty no you thought they were having another scene to to play off of the assistant and you know and it's, it's
1: and it's a funny scene too
4: right and so that usually when they show the, the, the guy like that you get a clue like oh i bet that that's moriarty or that's some important guy this was but at least it went past me. It went totally past me. I had no idea that was going to be Moriarty.
1: As a note, if anybody has not gone online and read the blogs for the show, which actually exist, like Sherlock's website and Watson's blog, go for, they're linked off the BBC site. They're hilarious. The read lab the comments. Assistant. The lab, the, the lab assistant, poor Molly, has a blog with like cats all over it and everything. And the <laughs> comments are all comments like left by the other characters in the show. So, like, he'll have Watson's recap of the story and then Sherlock like correcting him in the comments of all like the things he got wrong. It's So well, it's one of the best pieces of like viral type marketing I've ever seen. (laughs) So we're all going to
4: read that for the next year and a half, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's sort of like set right now. I mean, it's what's interesting also is that the most recent stuff on it, and I don't think they're updating it right now. um, The most recent stuff on it sort of builds on the last episode, which is that you have sarah watson's sort of would-be girlfriend posting comments on the blog like asking like has anybody heard from john you know and you're like you're kind of left with that same cliffhanger ending and
0: since only they only did the three episodes we will be waiting for more than quite some probably time a year yeah to see more so episodes okay. of it
3: at least we'll have doctor who in the middle to bridge it
0: And that sound you hear is the sound of us shifting gears slightly to talk about Doctor Who more, because I think we're already grinding the gears, so we'll shift. Yo, can we um, make that TARDIS sound in there? One of the, <laughs> 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 is, that's, that's, that's the best part of this podcast. Also. Yeah, Le- left the brakes on. That, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the, stabil- the blue stabilizers. So one of the one of the knocks on Moffat uh, coming in and taking over for Russell T. Davis is that, in many ways, I think you could argue that that in in his acclaimed episodes that he wrote. Um, that Moffat wrote in the Davis run, he probably, for at least the first few of them, didn't really know whether he was going to ever get the reins or whether he wanted them or whether he would take them or whether it would all happen and he got the opportunity to write for Doctor Who, his favorite show as a kid so he was like I'm going to do, I'm going to pull out all the stops and he wrote these episodes that are acclaimed and that everybody more or less loves and I, I, I agree, I think that they, are, that they were all generally great. Now the knock on him is that now he's got to do a 13 episode season followed by a special and then another 13 episodes to come and that perhaps he used his best material and chose to sort of go back over it A little bit, and I know that that I I don't know what you guys think of that, and I'm not sure I entirely buy it. But isn't that something that all writers fear, though? (laughs) Well, yeah, but I mean, that's the trick: is can you maybe it's can you not repeat yourself, or can you file off the serial numbers enough that nobody notices that you're repeating yourself? And I recently watched the finale again of Doctor Who, and I had several moments where I was thinking, this this is Silence in the Library. Um, Mm -hmm. In many ways, this is the same plot, (laughs) just with some different characters and some slightly different stakes. So i you know, I enjoyed the season on the whole, although there was a part in the middle where I thought it was um, totally off the rails and was going to crash and burn in the end, I liked how it was resolved, but I do think it's an interesting question about whether um Stephen Moffat um, sort of blew his wad when Davis was running the show, and then when he took over, he sort of had to say, "Oh crap."
1: I think. Well, I think the saving graces have been the the, the, the casting uh, and the performances, and a lot of the dialogue. I mean, I think that his, regardless of his sort of plot structures of points, which I agree have sometimes you know veered towards the repetitive, I think he still crafts such a great uh, set of interchanges between his characters, and that the char- the actors who are bringing those characters to life do such a good job that. For me, I am, to a certain extent, willing to overlook some of the weaknesses in plot just for the sheer sort of moment-to-moment enjoyment.
0: And who, uh, Jason Brightman, who didn't see Sherlock, is going to jump in here because otherwise he may. He's playing Scott McNulty from the first episode where he didn't <laughs> say anything for the first half. Of it. <laughs> and now is his chance, and I know he wants to jump in here. Well, yeah, I think the. Um, well,
5: clearly, there's different skills in writing episodes and being a showrunner. You know, Moffitt's writing is is brilliant and amazing, and he has written most of the best episodes uh, since the series relaunched in 2005. But I think what you could see in this last series was. Is a certain unevenness that you didn't have with Davies running it. And it could have been because, uh, well, Davies rewrote every right, single episode, right? Right. It didn't. Exactly. And so I, I think that caused unevenness in the series. And also Moffitt writes best, you know, that dialogue and the conversations, which are so amazing and let these great actors kind of chew on stuff. But he's his episodes, and you saw this, Towards the later ones, like Silence, he sometimes gets a little has too much plots and only too many good ideas that he tries to throw in. If you look at the uh, uh, the second one, the Beast Below, you know that had the cities flying in space and the Winders and the Queen and this every you know it had so much plot that it really took away from the dialogue because it didn't leave room for the characters in a way.
0: That that episode, which I didn't like, but I did feel was one was almost like an old style four-part or six-part Doctor Who serial from the 70s where they Mm. throw in all those ideas and have so much time to explore all the ideas. But cast into 45 minutes is the only time. A lot of hardcore fans of the old show will say, oh, I wish they would still do it where the episodes went on forever and they ran up and down corridors. And I don't believe that. (laughs) But that episode felt to me like it really needed to be that if it was going to be anything because it was just crammed full of the stuff and then it all just flew by.
2: You know what was really missing was the uh, shot of a quarry in Wales. I really <laughs> missed that
0: that I'm episodes. sure there was a quarry in there
5: somewhere. If you look at his episodes like Blink, you know, it had the sort yeah. of one bad guy with the one idea of, uh, you know, great alien, great concept, great structure, really well put together. Um, and you compare that to something like The Beast Below or even the Angel two-parter yeah. series. Yeah. too many ideas really seem he seems to trip over himself a lot what what the british might call over egging the pudding
0: (laughs) (laughs) excellent britishism there dan
1: which is to say too much like like jason's saying too much of a good thing maybe like showing off a little too much like i think that's you're right with like the angels episode like the second angel episode where you have like all the angels i feel like you lose something because it loses a little bit of the specialness of the like it was really creepy when you were like one and away from like like one angel, but when you get like fifty, it's sort of, it sort of turns into like a like a zombie movie instead. Oh, it's thriller?
4: Well, again, he went back to the angel well. There, speaking of repeating yourself, you know, I know you might be willing to forgive him, but he did go back to the angel well because it's like, what's the episode am I best known for? What's my best episode? Angels. Everybody loves angels.
0: Let's do a two-parter. With Doctor it. Who has never shied away from repeating monsters. Oh, I'm not like I'm not <laughs>
4: complaining about the Daleks or, or anything. I'm just saying the angels in particular were were uh, you know. A, a sort of signature marker and to bring them back for a double episode feels a little bit lazy but but I feel like it, with anything except for hard sci-fi the story matters much less than the characters and that better be the case because I think a lot of Doctor Who stories are not very good sci-fi. I'm not a big fan of you know, at, just taken from a sci-fi perspective, if you saw the synopsis, you'd say, mm, I've been there. Moffat the actually says they're not sci-fi.
0: Explore. Right. No, mm-hmm. no,
4: it's, it's a fairy tale. And and that's how it plays out. But if the characters are good and you're invested in what they're doing, you're willing to go, okay, fine, alien, whatever, you know, angel, whatever. If you make a universe and you have some sort of set of rules, you have to have some sort of consistency among them. Whatever you decide the rules are. If the rules are magic, if your black holes act like X, then they have to always act like X. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Doctor Who, they're much more willing to change the rules from, not just from season to season or doctor to doctor, but from, like, moment to moment within an episode. Yeah, before this type of alien, it was this kind of danger, but now he doesn't. They
2: made fun of that in the, uh, the Dream Lord episode. Yeah. A little bit. A cold star, as we get closer to it, it's colder and colder.
3: The three of us have to agree now, which is the dream? It's this, here. You could be right. science is all wrong here. Burning ice. No, no, no. Ice can burn. Sofas can read. It's a big universe. We have to agree which battle to lose. All of
5: us. Now. See, so Uh-oh. let's talk about the character of the doctor compared, you know, now with Moffat running things to uh, Davis's doctor and not you know, necessarily Tennant, but just the doctor character.
1: What, what's interesting is I had an argument with a friend. I will, I will just mention Tenet really quick because I had an argument with a friend because he thought going into the Stephen Moffat season, he's like, yeah, it seemed too much to me like they were trying to recapture like the David Tennant glory with, you know, the Matt Smith character. And it's like I can definitely see that to a certain extent. You know, there is a little, you know, he's a charming, offbeat, slightly quirky guy. You know, like all the Doctors have been to a certain extent. Um, But I think that there are things that are profoundly different about the 11th Doctor. I mean, the episode that comes to mind when I think about that is The Lodger, which is just such a, a wacky, off-the-wall episode. And his interactions with people are so different from the 10th Doctor, who I think was a little more, you know, he was certainly more with it, like sort of on a social scale. Like, the, the 11th Doctor is more like the... The Mark or the Stephen Moffat Sherlock Holmes. He doesn't quite know how to d- interact with humans. He's a little weird. We have that great scene in the first episode where he keeps telling young Amy to to cook him different things, and he keeps spitting that's, out all the different marvelous. food. And it was a great p- bit of physicality and sort of you know reminder that this this character is totally alien to us in many ways. And I think the, the lodger was a great example of like he's totally oblivious to how he's affecting the lives of this uh, the, the life the life of this guy he's living with and his sort of relationship with his uh, you know would be girlfriend and I think it 's just that's to me was a was a episode in which you couldn 't have just swapped the tenth doctor in uh, maybe the ninth Doctor in some ways. You know, Christopher Eccleston's performance is, is is a bit of it. I think that, you know, Smith does a great job of blending at least the, the ninth and tenth Doctors, and beyond that, I'm afraid that my, my knowledge is a little slim when it comes to the earlier Doctors.
0: Sure, sure, that's what they all say. Ren, what what do you think about the, the transition from the tenth to the eleventh?
3: I mean, I definitely think that Matt Smith as the eleventh has a more humanist approach than Tennant, at the same time being more out of it, which is really strange. I mean, I'll go back to the Lodger as well, Dan, in that I really don't think that Tennant's doctor would have actually jumped in and interacted the way that Matt Smith's doctor did. And, you know, the playing of the... Playing football is the one that immediately comes to mind.
2: We've got a match today, pub league. We're one down if you fancy it. Pub league. A drinking competition. No.
1: Football. Play football.
2: Football. Football!
5: Yes! Blokes play football. I'm good at football, I think. Now... Was the one with the sticks, isn't it?
3: But also, I mean, interactions with Amy and things like that, and that I feel like you get uh, the information from Tennant's doctor. You get, all, you kind of can see the the things with Rose and his past companions in Matt Smith's eyes when when you kind of compare it to Amy when he kind of steps back from Amy launching on him mid-season uh, when she's just kind of trying to avoid the whole wedding thing like you you see all of the information that he's been getting from Tennant's doctor, but I think despite sharing similar characteristics, these two are very different beasts they have like they're David Tennant was always very much more about the knowledge and more about you know, oh he's, he's oh, brainier. yeah exactly he's very he's very brainy, whereas I feel Matt Smith is much more the doer, Matt Smith is all right, you know, oh science, let's jump into it anyway, I mean. When you think about it and you go back to Stephen Moffat writing certain episodes, you, the the line that most comes to mind is, you know, timey wimy wibbly-wobbly stuff from, <laughs> from Blink, of course. But I feel like more of that, more of Stephen Moffat's attitude towards, oh, well, the science doesn't so much matter. Let's just go have the adventure. I think that's very much the essence of Matt Smith's character.
5: This doctor, the 11th doctor, started off lying to his companion mm. right from the very first episode. In that scene in the TARDIS at the end, when she said, Why me? No, no, fun. Do I have to have a reason? You always have a reason. Do I look like people? Yes. Been knocking around on my own for a while, my choice, but I've started talking to myself all the time. It's give me earache. You're lonely. That's it. Just that. Just that. As the quiz on his monitor behind him, and then he turns it off so she doesn't see it. That he had another
0: agenda right from the beginning right. and well, lied first, to her about it. And first he breaks his promise to her, right? right. And, and and then and damages her childhood and then he lies to her. Right. <laughs> and then in the
5: next yeah, yeah, and then in the very next episode, The Beast Below, when uh, he, he's telling her, you know, I just sit back and don't interfere and you know, don't get in any <laughs> trouble and exactly you know, just straight up and I'm watching it going, Oh, this doctor is a liar. <laughs>
0: that's right, which that's, which as Riversong says in the finale Rule one, the doctor lies.
2: Yeah. More significantly, this one is—you're right—is—is uh, is he, he's more likely to yeah to to fabricate? I mean, Tennant's doctor was, I think, honest to a fault. He didn't seem to have the ability, to, you know. He seemed to suffer all this pain about it, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm it sorry. I'm so so <laughs> sorry. He was Ernst exactly.
4: The entire doctor character always strikes me as a little bit Mary Sue, you know. And
2: I'm sorry, you need to translate of a doctor. that doctor. Which
4: oh, uh, uh, <laughs> it's writeries, you know, Mary Sue character who no, does everything so perfectly, it's a, who knows it's everything, a fanfic he ra- term. He graded everything he tries. I did not yeah, know that um, term.
0: Glenn, we're cranking down the meter to one.
4: Oh, fifteen-year-old. <laughs> Talk more tried.
2: slowly.
4: So so the success of the doctor as a character is is dependent I think on how they balance that sort of marry soonness. He can't be a superman because he, be, he becomes completely uninteresting like sort. superman. Yeah. He has to... <laughs> Sorry
0: punk book club.
4: He has to have some sort of problem or inability to deal with something or a crisis or yeah, something. He of needs a vulnerability. Point. Yeah, and Tennant's Tenant's thing was that he always wanted to fix everything and he usually did. So that's a big difference between him and Matt Smith. Um, and he had this these strange love hangups with humans and a weakness for them. And occasionally he got ahead of himself in terms of his confidence. And Matt Smith has a different set of flaws. And I think Matt Smith's flaws are uh, a little bit easier to relate to because they're more like a feeling of alienation and not fitting in and uh, you know doing things that you might regret later. Just because you don't have the guts to make a difference, you know, or for example, I, you know, uh, breaking his promise to Amy, he it was accidental, you know, like, oh, I'll be back in five minutes. Oh, was it not five minutes? Oh, well, right that shows that he doesn't really understand how humans work quite yet, that it's not a big deal to him, but it's a big deal to her. And, and we relate to that as a character flaw, even if he doesn't think it's a flaw. Um, so I think that it really helps to balance he's, him.
2: He's more callous, which I kind of like because it's a little bit too much. Sometimes you're just like, I mean, that is the kind of thing. You can't save the universe all the time. You can try, but you're not always going to succeed. And there's, you know, I mean, apparently you do always succeed since we're still here. Yeah, every but, day
0: of a time you, <laughs> but, but, well, you know, no, you the, just
2: reboot the universe. Right. That was, yeah. I mean... That, that's the funny thing. I, we should, you know, I, I mean, we're, this is all spoilers, all spoilers, all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that the universe blows up and it's like, oh, all we need to do is rejigger the, the Earth still exists for no particular reason. and But things are getting worse suddenly now. And this giant cube that's been the theme of the whatever is no longer important. And we'll just hit the button and rescue everybody and blow the universe back up. And it'll be just like it was. except. Do happened. I have
0: to say this? But I will say this. As somebody who's seen that episode three times now. <laughs> It it does hold together internally. It, it it from an external perspective, yes, of course, it's kind of ridiculous. But internally, it does hold together. It is all it is all explained. The the Pandorica is put to the Big Bang, which allows the last remnant of the old universe to, to. Uh, Cast its light on the universe, and so it comes back. I'm not quite sure why Rory has the memories of the Auton um, uh, soldier guy, other than that it's a nice story. But who cares? It's sweet. It's nice, and right. and I and I like how it ended. And and everything can be explained with fezzes. Yeah. Fezzes are, cool. are cool. I can buy a new fez. That may be the line of the whole season.
5: By the yeah. way, I,
2: this is I, the I, thing. This is the thing, though. The one element is why did River Song remember right? That's always the, that's, the, that's the that's the critical point. Why did she remember? Why did she have her blank book?
5: And right. I do. I think River Song is is probably Moffat's greatest creation. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you take any sort of serialized show that's been on for forty years, then you can't really kill the Doctor. You can't change the Doctor that much. You know, to be able to enhance his story by introducing this character from the future, like that, that's just brilliant rock.
0: It's his biggest gamble too because it has now been set up across two seasons, going to be in a third at least and you know it it does threaten to change his story and how we perceive him and now that in the last episode he drops the bomb where she says, you know, the next time you see me, this is all going to make sense. Learn about me and everything changes which is such a a thing. I mean, sure, Russell Davis did that all the time and nothing changed but uh, (laughs) to say that, it's such, again, you're raising the stakes and how's he going to pay that off because oh, clearly this is uh, I was going to say you're sure. assuming he is going to pay it off well <laughs> he, he says he's going to make that oh, assumption he, he I, he I, I've been burned that,
4: so many well, times well so. I know but, <laughs> but I'm I assuming that say, he's not going to pay it off in a satisfying way he's just going to drag it oh, out it'll it. Be it, disappointing. John, John you need a hug not, not that I find it disappointing. I think that's that's the tool to use to make to add interest to to a character who is too powerful. Put someone in the show who knows something he doesn't know, and keep bringing them back to tweak him with it. You can do that for a long time, and I think that's in itself is satisfying. You don't need the payoff ends that. The payoff says, "Oh, now we know everything it's the, the river it's, knew." It's the moon. Well, it's the moonlighting problem. The,
0: the reason I think huh. that. It, Actually, I do think the River Song um, payoff will probably be um, disappointing to a lot of people because I think where he's going with this is we're probably going to see over the course of next season in a couple episodes, maybe, you know, maybe two, maybe four. She was in four this year. What we're going to see is them having that core of the relationship because I think a lot of people have this perception that like, oh, they're going to get married and they're going to have a marriage and then it's going to end. And I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think we're essentially seeing it sort of. Um, It's a big ball of timey-wimey stuff. No, it's a big ball, and we're seeing it from the outside passing to the middle. And in the middle is the moment we've seen the doctor knowing her and she being on the other side of the relationship. We're going to get to that midpoint next year where this relationship is essentially consummated. And then we're going to continue to see her, but it's going to be on the other side of her. Before she's met the doctor. Uh, Yeah, uh, before they've gotten to that point. And and then her echoes are going to kind of – she'll – occasionally, but the core of the story will already have been told. It's I think the time traveler's wife. Yeah, exactly. And oh, I think except, uh, people are going to be pissed off by that. I, I, I think some people are going to be, what? That's it? That's the whole thing? I thought there were going to be whole seasons no, with no, the Song, there, which was never There happening.
2: has to be a payoff though, remember? He has to go to the planet midnight before she dies and has to be far along in the relationship early for him, <clears throat> where he almost doesn't know why he's doing it. It has to happen Sooner, I mean, at I some mean, point, we've already seen off. the end, right? Right. So
0: yeah. we, have... we, we haven't seen the penultimate scene where he goes to her and realizes it's the last time he'll see her. And I suspect right. we might even see that next season.
2: Uh, actually, so she has to see him die. Like or too. we'll never
0: see it. Or we'll never well, see it. We know she, about it. She's, she's supposed, supposed to some... kill him,
2: right? Yeah, she has to see no. him die or she kills him. Maybe. We don't know. Maybe.
0: Well, she, Maybe. she killed that's the best man she'd I think, ever known, she said. I, I think so, that's where it'll be a cheat, honestly. But I don't know. I I don't know. The other thing that uh,
5: I think is important that um, the way Stephen Moffat talks the show is uh, there isn't anything that isn't canon about Doctor Who, including the stuff that contradicts Doctor Who. (laughs) Because Because, it all just gets erased. Because he's a time traveler. At any
0: moment, he could totally erase and undo and change. And that it's all... My question for all of you assembled here is, uh, I've got a couple. First off is, uh, where do they go from here? What what do you think, looking forward to the second season of Stephen Moffat's run of Doctor Who, we've got Amy and Rory in the TARDIS. We've got the River Song plot that's floating out there. I'm just wondering what what you're kind of thoughts or interests are about about what you would like to see this show do next crossover with sherlock holmes
2: <laughs> <laughs> so You mean slash fiction you're talking about
0: whoa whoa all right
4: let's not cross
0: that line <laughs> they might as well put it on the holodeck if they're gonna hey if they could well, have if they I could thought, work coupling into i would be there <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought Ren was working
5: on that not if it's oliver <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna find out that amy is in patrick's love cover if, if
1: jeff murdoch showed up in the tardis That would be the best thing ever. (laughs) Awesome.
2: Time machine. It's a it's a big wibbly wobbly time I just like to say it time machine. Shadime In the new season. I wanna see less pulling of
4: punches because they, they creep right up to him with Matt Smith, right? They had the whole idea of, uh, of Amy's history getting erased. And that's kind of a sad thing to imagine. And she can't remember Rory, but they, they couldn't land the punches. Oh, she can't remember Rory. How sad. It's sad for us as the viewer, right? But you knew they were going to come back. Oh, Rory. Now you remember me and you're a robo Rory or the reset the universe and everything, you know, like don't pull that punch, you know, that's, yeah. you have to go with that because instead of just waiting until the companion leaves or dies or something, go with, you know, horrible things happen to companions and the doctor knows that they happen. But they don't know because their history was erased and there's no fix for it. And you just got to go on. I mean, it It also
1: provided it provided for like the one of the greatest moments, I thought, in the in the first rebooted season, the Eccleston season, um, the in the doctor dances, you know, up until that point, you have several episodes in a row where stuff goes badly and people don't necessarily make it. Um, And then you have that moment where everybody lives and lives just, yeah. Like, and I think, you know, there's something very compelling about that, you know, in the sense that it's not, it's, if when it, if you have all, if you don't pull those punches, as John says, then when on the rare occasions, Things do work out. You feel like you've earned something. Like you mm-hmm. feel like
4: you've gotten something out of it. It's a different sort of response because you're you're so ad- and you feel like it's it's a triumph for the doctor. Yeah, then absolutely. Because he's been struggling with his failures and he overcomes them. If you don't, but if he if he wins every time, or even if you know, like I don't want it to be solved in three episodes. I I would be happy with you know. Him totally destroying one companion and making her the tragic companion who everything goes wrong with, and she, and she forgets her history, and all, but she's fine, you know, she's completely happy, but only the Doctor knows how horrible
2: Do- it is. Isn't that Donna? Donna? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, can I ask a question about outer space? Fellas and nope. lady. Nope. Um, Doesn't exist. Am I right? Think about the first thirteen episodes of Matt Smith. They were on another planet only in the Angels two parter. Am I right about that? And the Beast Below was on a spaceship. On mm. a spaceship. And everything else was on Earth, wasn't it? And the Angels one, it was like they were in, you know, Or on the targets, right. They're in a Cardiff. of glory. Just giving Enjoy. in to
4: the Earth centric nature of the show. No more taking campaigns to see the universe that's cost too much mo- right. too much money for
5: sets. <laughs> yeah. the, the the budget oh, no. was cut a lot from the Russell T. Davis era.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that's part of it, and also a show that has to be different every single week. It's awfully hard to build a new alien planet every week without. I mean, Star Trek did it, and they all were that red cyclorama um, <laughs> indoor terribleness. So here's my um, here's my question. I want to go around this uh, virtual room and ask each of you this. To a you know, high a uh, high point and a low point from this last year of Doctor Who you could be favorite episode or not or it could be a moment whatever but i'm i'm kind of curious to see how how those match up high point and a low point the
5: uh high point for me was the dream lord episode
0: which which had an ending that was ambiguous and a bit dark right because right. it was all his fault
5: right it had it had some of that it had the you know it wasn 't a clear win it also seemed it, Like it really had a clear voice for all of the characters and had some sort of humor and uh, darkness and kind of an interesting sci-fi thing but um, and a good bad guy. You know, overall, that episode was really solid. I think the low point for me was uh, The Beast Below. Although I keep going back to it because there was a lot of interesting things, but I think it was (laughs) – Fascinating failure. Right. It was a great (laughs) failure. There was just so much going and it seemed like characters are really – at the end, the doctor looks at the situation. Goes, the only solution is to kill, lobotomize the whale. It's the only <laughs> way out of this, you know. And that to me was sort of epic failure. That he like, it's a fail whale. Like, I was like, not only is the new doctor, <laughs> right, not only is the new doctor a liar, but he so is stupid. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. So that to me, episode didn't work so well, even though it had a lot of good things.
1: I thought, I thought the low point for me was the the second two parter, the hungry earth and cold blood. There was something that I liked a lot about the beginning of The Hungry Earth when it's kind of creepy and you don't know what's pulling these people into the Earth. Like, there was something – I liked the unexplained nature of that. And then the second part of it really turned it into this, there's this alien society that's been living under the Earth for years. And I know it's a throwback to some of the earlier Doctor Who references, but – it just got. It was totally boring, and I, I mean, I really didn't do anything for me. And yes, we do end up with that sort of the note of Rory getting erased, which is kind of gives you that bittersweet, like dark ending. But uh, the the episode itself, I thought, was really, really kind of a waste of time, and really
0: so dull. unfortunate that Rory's death gets tacked onto the end of those terrible episodes because it, it makes them really... sort of essential viewing. And yet, my my mother in law is a a Doctor Who watcher, and she was like, "Well, I'm I'm a few episodes behind." Knew the next episode's coming up where that two parter, and I was like, "You should skip it." Oh, wait, you can't skip it because. Yeah,
1: but I mean, to to compare with that, so the, you know, if that's sort of the low point, then for me, I guess the high point, like I felt like the season had very good bookends. I, I really enjoyed the first episode. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I liked, you know, the introduction of Matt Smith. I like the eleventh hour. You know, as we as we have that episode where the Doctor has established who he is, and we have they, they they've done a lot of callbacks this year to a, to all of the previous Doctors, which I thought was very interesting. Um, like they had one episode, the first episode where he has the, the alien scan him and it shows all the other doctors. Um, and then there's an episode where he like pulls a library card. Yeah. The William Hartnell Mm, library card. Um, and I thought, you know, that, that first episode was really, I really enjoyed it. And then the last, uh, the, the last two, especially towards the end, um, of the, of the the season, I thought were, were really good and sort of brought us back up to that level. And it seemed like unfortunate that there were a lot of things in between that were kind of crucial, as you say, plot wise, but but still a lot of times felt like filler.
4: I think I'm going to pick uh, two high points. uh well when Rory when Rory dies slash gets forgotten, that was a big high point for me because A I didn't really like him much and B I felt like finally, finally they're they're gonna you know, they're gonna do something with these characters. And of course the low point was when they brought him back. Yeah, and not that I not that I mind the character so much, it's just that I, I I'm looking for that kind of character drama to offset the uh the, the super supernatural nature of the doctor and, and how he does everything right. Um, and I think the other high point was how they brought everything together at the end of the series. Like, it did really get lost there in the middle with a couple of, like, weak Monster the Week episodes with a little bit of arc points thrown in. and like, man, how are they going to wrap this up? But I thought they kind of, even with bringing Rory back and Robo Rory and all that ridiculousness, Robo Rory. I thought they wrapped it up. It, it, they sort of pulled it out in the end. Like, this series could have, as, as Jason said, gone off the rails, and it looked like it was. And they really kind of... Brought it back in. And said, no, no, no. We still know what we're doing. We got a little lost there, but we're settling in. You know, um, and and that was satisfying to me. It made me look forward to the next season instead of uh, wondering that if they could really handle the doctor on his own. You know,
3: John, I have to agree with you regarding Rory. I think my my low point for the season is actually Rory's arc in general. Uh, I just. He's, he's just, he got no time to really, or we really don't, didn't understand him as a character, why he was there besides being Amy's fiance. He didn't, we didn't really get a reason why Amy likes him other than, oh, I guess she does because she's grown up with him. So, I mean, I'm kind of hoping for next season that we actually, since he looks to be towards getting a permanent member on the, on the TARDIS, let's hope that he actually gets some character development. Yeah, he was a little bit like Mickey. Yeah, but Mickey, and then Mickey I actually
4: mean, got
1: somewhere
3: towards yeah. the end,
4: right? Yeah. Right,
3: but oh, but Mickey Rory made me great. think of Mickey. All yeah. mm-hmm.
4: oh, the little, the little wilted kind of boyfriend who can't compare with the doctor, but is concerned about it. You know, then he becomes kickass.
0: Does he? I don't know. Yeah,
3: Mickey gets ze- alternate <laughs> Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> zeppelin reference. As we know everything gets better with Zeppelins. Ding ding ding.
0: That's how you know you've fallen into a crack and come out in an alternate universe. Just watch for the airships in the sky. Yep.
3: That's how it works. But yeah, I think my high point is actually relatively obscure in that while vampires of Venice, I didn't overall think the episode was stellar i think the point at which matt smith has the conversation with uh uh does anybody remember what the the aliens are called the vampire aliens the
0: The vampires
3: when 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 he has the conversation with the with the mother about you know saving her race versus you know oh you're you know you're alone like us and where matt smith basically takes a very hard stand against that and is just like, no, I'm sorry. It has to be, you know, for the good of for the good of all. I think he takes like a, a nice left turn from Tennant at that point where it's just like, okay, here's the final sever in terms of I'm not going to be sad and weepy over the loss of my race and I'm going to go forward. So I thought that was like a really nice high point.
2: You know, I, I think I had a lot of low points in the season. I, I really liked the good episodes and I thought there were several, like the Dalek resurrection, the uh, victory of the Daleks. I thought it was mostly stupid, although I liked the acting quite a lot. I'm a big fan of the guy who played Winston Churchill. Um, I thought "Hungry Earth" and "Cold Blood" were just sort of boring, like, and very know, heavy-handed. Like, uh, people are bad, but they'll eventually get good, and like the narrative device of speaking from a hundred years in the future, and so forth. Um, I really liked the lodger. I thought it was hilarious, even though it was essentially the uh, Madame Pompadour episode. I forget what it's called from uh, two seasons before "Girl right? in the
4: Fireplace." Uh, "Girl in the
2: Fireplace," which is the best, one of the best episodes on Davies, I think. uh fantastically yeah. interesting. It was Save very much the of- same. Right. Oh he wrote yeah, of course he did. Right. <laughs> so just like Douglas Adams, do you know you know that Douglas Adams, All every script episodes. he wrote for Doctor Who that either was produced or not produced became either a book or another thing, same thing. So uh but no I think I think my favorite moment, I have to say, weirdly enough, was um in the uh the uh, Amy's choice, the uh, dream lord episode there was a moment when i actually was teary when rory died where i didn't really care about him much as a character but like he dies to save his unborn child and his wife or his, uh, his wife in the that alternate version of reality she then kills herself or thinks she may because she doesn't want to live in a world He's very sure this could be the real world it can't rory isn't here i didn't know
3: i didn't i didn't i honestly didn't till right now
2: I just want him. It's this sort of romantic, crazy thing with mo- old people as monsters. And it was like very Doctor Who, like old people with cheap, weird eyeballs sticking out of their mouths and green gas that dissolve people and strange old country houses and people climbing up ivy walls and stuff. And, you know, some crummy special effects made modern, you know, good CGI, but still sort of crummy <laughs> ideas of special effects. And, but that actual human moment where he's like, he throws himself in front of the window to save his wife. And I was like, you know, this is the thing is once you become a parent, I think everything involving children makes you weep. If anything happens, even fictionally, and so I, I think that got me most of all.
0: But then they were all fine in the end, weren't they? Well, that's. I think that's a great point. Which is, um, I thought that the uh, death scene of Rory in Amy's Choice was so affecting, and mm. her sacrifice because she didn't want to live in a world with Rory without Rory was so affecting. Who wants to live in a world with Roy? No. Um, (laughs) She
2: keeps getting her wish.
0: Two episodes later, when he gets, like, accidentally hit by a thing from the sea devils and and falls in the crack, it's just – and that that was, I thought, the low point of the season where I thought it had gone off the rails was oh. in that two-parter where where you get this. I thought his death was much more affecting in the other episode than in the the one where it's the real death. They went to the well too many times. No, I said and that that was a bad Star Trek: The Next Generation episode, right mm. down to the Jim Hadar mask. Sorry, Deep Space Nine Jim mm-hmm. Hadar reference, but oh, uh, yeah. on the on the Sea Devils, which were uh, apparently they had designed something that was a little more like the uh, classic series, and they decided no, 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 we're going to go with the Star Trek masks. And so for me. I think that was my low. I'll agree with Glenn that victory of the Daleks was was dumb and it didn't need to be dumb. And I felt like they had a great story in there. And then they buried it because um, Stephen Moffat, Mark <laughs> Gatiss played the game of saying, um, let's throw in some spitfires in space and some other things and just put them all in the pot. When oh God, I got oh, I forgot. Was, I forgot was, the in space. Why, did Why did you remind me of that? Me of that? Oh, and, and we've added a Dalek to the. Wow, that was amazing! Did you do that purposely? No, no, I did not. Oh, John, you sound exactly like I'm a Dalek. You do. You this sound like a Dalek. Peeping me out. Well, <laughs> on, uh, the victory in the Daleks—that's the thing that really offended me about it—is that the story of Daleks saying that they were helping them win the war and carrying around tea was so hilarious, and it was gone in like five minutes. And they—that—that's the sort of thing that in the classic Doctor Who that would have been an entire episode, and then their plan would have been revealed at the end. And instead, it wasn't even half the episode, and I thought that was really disappointing. And all we got out of that was. This sort of machinations on the spaceship at the end and 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 it was like a great idea that was just all wrong in the balance of it. Um and my high point I'm gonna say is the lodger because I know a lot of fans hate it just like they hated Love and Monsters and they mm. hated, you know, there are all these all these kind of oddball episodes that people hate that are a little bit off format. And I thought the Lodger was great it was hilarious. hilarious i thought the show it was the show getting its footing back mm. with the, those two episodes with amy's choice and the lodger and if you don't like the lodger you're not hooked up right hey
2: i want to mention i want one more favorite thing can i have one more favorite thing no. please no no please i'll come uh, all right Fine. um <laughs> young amy Never. i love amelia oh she's the actress fantastic. Is fantastic she's hilarious mm. and perfect and there's something she has like the the uh, guilt uh, the Karen Gillian, I actually am not a big fan of her. I think she's fine, but I don't think she brings that kind of hardcore, like Billy Piper or any, I mean, actually almost any of the companions of the history, but like Billy Piper, you know, she seemed like this slip of a girl and blah, 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 lived in the council flats, and then was like, man, they really wrote, and she was able to act a solid core. She did the right thing. She knew what to do, and I feel like it's an act for both the actress and the, the character is written, but young Amelia is actually, I think, in a lot of ways, better, but you can't Trapes around the universe with an eight-year-old, I suppose.
0: I, I love the fact that the entire series begins, uh, the series proper after the opening credits, with a young girl in her window praying to Santa, <laughs> Santa right. yes. the, the, uh I wanted to actually disagree with you, Jason, for a second. Oh,
5: yes. On, uh, the
0: show is over.
5: On Rory's <gasps> death. <laughs> in Amy's choice when he died and it was so poignant, Amy was so upset about it that she kills herself and the doctor because she doesn't want to live in that world. That made Rory's death and his actually not never being born. I think, more poignant because she had that reaction yeah. that she's like, I'm going to kill myself than be mm-hmm. without this person. And then for the rest of the series, she didn't know he was even there. It felt more weighty because of that earlier episode. Yeah,
4: that, that, did, that did build on that. But then when they brought him back, it's like, well, why did you bother? Why did you bother making, trying to make us care about him, taking him away, not letting her know he was gone, but then bring him back anyway? You, know? you see,
0: Jason, I, I agree with you on a purely kind of like rational basis of like, yes, I can see why you would do this in order to make that point later. And yet emotionally... You didn't feel it. it. didn't feel it. Felt like we already did that. And why are they trying to do it? Are they jerking our chain again? And the fact is, as John quite rightly points out, yeah, they were jerking our chain again. They killed this guy twice and brought him back twice in the span of like five episodes. And he, it's, he, that's a mistake that should not
5: have happened. Roy's the new Captain Jack.
2: I, I also <laughs> like... can't kill him. Can't kill him. Now, one of the best lines, one of the best bits of, okay, they really didn't have to go through this. They didn't have like the montage of Roy spending 2,000 years guarding the Crandorica. It was like... Well, you're looking good. Well, I stayed out trouble, obviously. And that's like the whole thing. And i like, that was great.
4: That's another case of them packing too many plot points and see a lot of time where they just, they got, <laughs> we got to quickly, you know. I do love that time travel uh, bit, though, where he keeps zapping back and forth.
0: Well, that that I feel like we've um, embarrassed ourselves and our families uh, in knowing so much about Doctor Who, and that's okay. I've been trying to get this
2: off my chest for years.
0: Well, so we've we talked and talked and talked about Stephen Moffat's various things, and we still didn't talk about Press Gang. Oh, it's a shame. <laughs> um, and could the coupling uh, be, be beside a, a brief sojourn into talking about how Jeff is a representative of the Doctor, which. Um, uh, he's from Wales, too. So there you go. Uh, that doesn't mean – anyway, I feel like we've reached the end for now because people are probably pulling out their headphones and saying, how long is this podcast anyway? You said it wouldn't be this long. It never ends. <laughs> edit, edit. The, the never-ending podcast. So I want to go around the horn again and thank everybody for being here. So Jason – Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Dan Morin, thanks a lot. Thank you. John Syracuse, thank you for bringing yourself and your Dalek voice with you. Anytime. Uh, Glenn Fleischman, you cranked it up to 10 today.
2: Pleasure.
0: And Serenity Caldwell, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, I think that's everybody, unless there's somebody we forgot.
2: Look under the, the table. <laughs>
0: nope, nope, that's that's about it. Um, I'm Jason Snell. Thank you for listening to The Incomparable Podcast. Um, join us again next time when the subject will be spin wheel. Sh- movies, I believe. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time.
2: That was The Incomparable Podcast.
1: Can you believe it is finally over? I wish I had a time machine to get that
0: hour of my life back. Visit us at theincomparable.com. Email us at podcast at theincomparable.com.